Today on World Footprints, we'll hear how travel can save lives, adventure travel lawyers can save money, and why drinking dust tea could help close an international business deal. Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Thank you for tuning in to World Footprints, the multi-award-winning show for socially responsible travelers. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. As Mark Twain once said, travel is fatal to prejudice, and World Footprints invites you to travel deeper as we connect you to remarkable people, places, and history around the globe. Thanks, dear. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Travel is one of the most transformative life experiences, but Josh DeBerg from the Make-A-Wish Foundation says that travel can even save lives. You know, it's their one true wish. It's the thing that they love. And we think that it can help them get through treatment. We think that it helps them feel better. An emerging legal practice, Adventure Travel Law, is helping travel providers navigate the world of business around human error, natural disasters, and more. Chun Wright will explain how an adventure travel lawyer can help travel entrepreneurs avoid significant loss. I always tell clients it's best to put things in writing with whoever they work with, whether they're customers or suppliers. Have you tried Dust Tea? Globetrotting executive Robert Hemphill has sampled this on one of his international business trips. In his book Dust Tea, Dingoes and Dragons, Bob explains why international business travel is much more than jet lag, boardrooms, and high-pressure deals. You really have to take a little bit of time, if you can, to at least see one or two of the things that everybody else comes to wherever you are to see or experience. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. Visit and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. Travel is one of the most transformative life experiences anyone can have. It can renew one's energy, bring immeasurable joy, even inspire a life's direction, and encourage hope. The Make-A-Wish Foundation understands the power of travel. Since 1980, the organization has granted over a quarter million wishes for children with life-threatening diseases. 75% of those wishes involve travel. Josh DeBerg from Make-A-Wish joins us to share some inspiring stories and how the organization, with your help, can continue bringing hope and joy into children's lives. Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. Tanya, thanks for having me. So before we talk about some of these stories, which I I know will melt our listeners' hearts and really inspire them... um, Tell, talk a little bit about the genesis for Make-A-Wish. It's a, very, it's a much younger organization than I originally thought, and it's just grown beyond measure. It's grown, it's grown quickly. We've, we are celebrating our 35th anniversary this year, uh, so we're really excited about that. And we've, we've granted, as you mentioned, more than 250,000 wishes. I think the great thing about the, the story of Make-A-Wish is that it, its beginnings were just a group of people who did a, a great thing, and they saw the impact it had on a child, and uh, since then it spread around the globe. But it started in Phoenix, Arizona, and a, a young boy who was seven had leukemia. His name was Chris Gracious. And um, Chris wasn't doing well. He was ending the, uh, getting to the, to the 
end of his life, but he had one passion and one wish, and um, that was to be a police officer. He, he loved watching the television show Chips and kind of fell in love with law enforcement. And so there was a group of law enforcement officers here in, in, in South Central Arizona that heard that that was his wish, and um, they did everything they could to make it a memorable, life-changing experience for Chris. So he, was, he, he traveled around uh, Phoenix in, in a Department of Public Safety helicopter. He mm-hmm. got to ride in police cars. They gave him his own motorcycle. He had a great time, and um, that was quite literally one of the last things he did in his life. He passed away a couple of days after that, and um, the the group of of officers and a few others came together and said, you know what, we have to do this again, not only because we saw the impact it had on Chris, but because it was such a great thing to do. Mm-hmm. And since that wish in 1980, um, uh, Make-A-Wish was incorporated, and we've we've since grown to cover every a city in the United States and its territories, and 50 countries throughout the world. Wow. And and so how is it managed, though, um, internationally with regards to um, which children uh, to, to mm-hmm. grant wishes for? I mean, how do, you, how do you go about that selection process? That's a really great question. And, and one thing that we try to, to stress is that um, we have eligibility requirements. And, and as you mentioned at the, the top of the segment, that um, we serve children with life-threatening medical conditions. A lot of folks here make a wish, and they may think that all of the kids we serve are, are, are terminal or, or dying. Mm-hmm. And um, that, unfortunately, is the case for some. But there's a, a large majority of the kids we serve who have medical conditions that are, that are life-threatening, um, that, that without treatment, um, that, you know, that, that their life would be, would be threatened. But as long as a child meets those qualifications mm-hmm. um, and they get into our system and they're referred to us, we grant their wish. So there's no selection process. There's no, uh, no us choosing which wish we will, will grant. Uh, we have a, a few kind of rules that the wish has to be safe, the wish has to have the parents and doctors uh, approval, and it has to be legal. Outside of that, the sky is kind of the limit for, for children between the ages of two and a half and 18. And um, we do everything we can and everything within our power. It takes a lot of resources to grant these wishes. But in the end, everybody who makes it into the system and is eligible gets their wish granted. And, and, you know, as a travel journalist, I'm really pleased to see that 75% or a large portion of mm-hmm. those wishes involve uh, travel. Uh, but I think some might be really surprised to to hear that we're not just talking about, you know, wish to be a princess at the Disneyland mm-hmm. castle. I mean, some of these these children, they uh, their wishes are so creative. Um, Absolutely. I, I, I don't know how you guys do it, but you're, you're truly uh, magicians. Talk, talk about some of the, the more challenging, I guess, wishes that uh, you've received and have been able to fulfill. Sure. So, you know, you mentioned Disneyland and Disney World, and, and Disney is a tremendous supporter of ours. About half of our wishes, half of the 14,000 wishes we grant each year, involve um, Disney in some way. And they have great experiences there. We have other kids, the, the other half of that 14,000, that, as you mentioned, they just have they have incredible imaginations and, and a desire to do some really kind of unique things. And, and I should mention, too, Tanya, that, that when we talk about travel and, and wishes that, that occur, 
Um, some wishes are specifically to go somewhere, and that is their wish. Um, but many of our wishes, you know, we have several categories. So there's I wish to have, um, there's I wish to uh, go, as I just mentioned. I wish to meet, and I wish to be. And we have some incredible wish granters um, who who take the the child's imagination and, and takes their wish and really turns it into to something incredible. And as you mentioned, seventy five percent of the wishes we grant do involve travel, and that could be a specific wish to go somewhere, as in I wish to go. Um, but it could also be travel associated with uh, another type of wish. I wish to meet a celebrity or a sports athlete I wish to have or I wish to be. And so, um, you know, uh, travel is a big part uh, of what we do. And um, as you mentioned, the imaginations of, of kids are just uh, pretty incredible. And there are some great, great stories out there of, of wishes that have taken a lot of, of work and resources. And it's one thing that a lot of folks may not realize. You know, one thing that we say is wishes don't just happen. And it takes a, a team of people and resources to to make sure that we're making it an experience that a child will never forget. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a large part of um, you know granting that wish, or at least the first step, is you know the airline ticket or the transportation. Um, and before we talk a little bit about this new campaign that Make a Wish uh, has has started, um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the wishes that you've yeah. you've granted i i see one um you know in the wish the i wish to go category there was uh, a wish of i wish to go to pompeii italy mm-hmm. yeah we have we we have kids that um you know not only travel around the united states and domestically but there are uh, wish kids who who have a desire to see the world mm-hmm. and so you know um, we've had uh, we've had a wish a wish as you mentioned to go to Pompeii. Um, that was Brian. He was 15 with Burkitt's lymphoma. Uh, another one of my favorites is a wish kid who wished to go to New Zealand to see um, uh, glowworms in the caves of of New Zealand. And I know that that he recently went on that trip and and, and had a blast. And then there's some that are even. Uh, kind of more creative than just going somewhere. So one of my favorite wishes, Tanya, that's that's come up recently is for Addison. Uh, she's a little six-year-old girl with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And she had what I'm sure she thought was a very simple wish at the time. And it was, I wish to meet a unicorn in the rainforests of Hawaii. This is one of those wishes where I'm sure our wish granters and our volunteers and staff gathered around a table and said, how are we going to grant this wish? And uh, they thought long and hard about it, and, and they came up with a spectacular experience for Addison. Um, with, with the airline miles that are so important to our wishes, Addison and her family were flown to Hawaii, and, and Addison believes unicorns are real. She thinks that they are out there and that they live in the rainforest of Hawaii. And... Um, the great thing is when she went to meet this unicorn and they, they dressed a horse up and they made it believable, um, she not only got to meet one, but she found herself in her own fairy tale. And they, they uh, conceived this, this story that there was an evil queen that was stealing all the food from the forest, leaving animals hungry, including the unicorn. And it was up to Addison and a prince to save the day. 
And when she did, she encountered the unicorn. She was incredibly happy. And the smiles and the pictures that uh, we see um, on her face were just, was just amazing. And that's one thing, um, you know, we try to pass along that a wish is more than just a nice thing. Mm -hmm. That for many kids and for many families, a wish is is a necessary part of treatment. Um, I I always think about it this way, and and your listeners, if they can put themselves in this spot, you're going through what is what are some of the the darkest times of your life, and you're you're a young person, and somebody comes along and says to you, you know what, you can wish for just about anything in the world. And it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. How does that change? Um, you know, how does that change their outlook on treatment, their outlook on life? And we think it plays a, a huge part in, um, in in a child's life, particularly when they're going through such tough times. So whether it's Addison going through the forests in Hawaii, or it's um, Luke who was six and simply wanted to see pineapples grow, you know, it's their one true wish. It's the thing that they love. And we think that it can help them get through treatment. We think that it helps them feel better. And I think you and I both know that when you feel better, it's sometimes easier to get better. Indeed. And that's why we do what we do here at Make-A-Wish. Indeed. And, you know, and like you said, at, at the top, you know, some of the wishes you've granted, um, like Addison, who, you know, you put in the middle of a fairy tale, she had at the end of that fairy tale, she had a victory. And so that mm-hmm. gives her, inspires her um, with hope and, you know, just a sense of I can do anything, which mm-hmm. does, you know, help in her her mental uh, state with regards to to treatment and certainly the children who travel around the world, um, you know, and who see different things and immerse themselves in culture and um, and just you know a whole different world. You're essentially uh, creating or growing young global citizens, uh, young people who you know turn out to or grow up the ones who survive, you know, mm-hmm. to really contribute substantially to our world. We have a lot of kids who, who will go on their wish, particularly ones who are, are to tra- travel destinations and say, you know what, when I get better and I get older, I'm going back or I'm going to become involved in something, um, you know, in a, in a foreign country. So it does, it expands their horizons and I think it gives them hope and it gives them something to look forward to um, and, and an experience that they don't ever forget. I think just like any other travel experience that we have. Indeed, indeed. And as, you know, as we said, these travel experiences are powerful, they're transformative, um, and, but they're expensive. Uh, yeah. And there is, um, you know, the airline tickets, just the transportation in and of itself, particularly when you're um, transporting the child and their family, that's a costly venture. And Make-A-Wish, I understand, has started a, a program that will help support these travel wishes. So tell us about that. Yeah, it's called Give Wishes Wings. And it is it gives travelers the opportunity to donate a portion of their uh, frequent flyer miles at some of the biggest airlines out there to make a wish. And the great thing about this is that um, the miles that we get, they never expire. And we do not use them for anything other than wish travel. And so by donating your airline miles, you are directly having an impact on, on a child. And it's really simple. The website is givewisheswings.org. 
and um, you you go onto the website. You choose from a number of airlines, um, including United, uh, American Airlines, Delta Airlines, uh, JetBlue, and Alaska Airlines. And um, it, the the, simp- the process is simple, and and you donate your miles. There's some staggering numbers associated with travel um, at Make a Wish. If we wanted to fund every airline ticket that we use in a given year to send kids on their wishes, it amounted 2.5 billion airline miles each year. It's a pretty staggering number, but when we have individuals across the country who are willing to donate, it can be as little as a thousand, and we've had donations as high as four million airline miles. Any number in between is extremely valuable to us. They all add up, and they all add up to sending kids and their families on these wishes. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, I mean, really, there's trillions of airline miles that go unused mm-hmm. each year. And, and, and uh, these miles that people donate um, do not expire, mm-hmm. from what I hear. And uh, yep. are, there, are there any international carriers, uh, Josh, that also participate in this program? So right now, uh, in the United States, the, the kind of big legacy carriers that would, you know, provide some international travel participate. And we don't have any relationships at this point in time with, um, with international carriers. But as we become more of a, of a global brand and, and we continue to send wish kids around the world, um, you know, I think this program could and, and will grow. And, and so right now we're, we're kind of confined to those airline carriers that I mentioned just a, just a bit. Uh, a bit earlier. Mm-hmm. And how um, would other organizations, anyone who's listening who may have, you know, a service, um, you know, if a child wanted to become, be a clown in um, a circus, um, mm-hmm. how would that circus or a clown association find you and, 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 and um, kind of align themselves with you? How, what's that process? Yeah, that is a great question. We we have 61 chapters throughout the country that um, are the the ones that are actually granting wishes. So we have staff throughout the country. We have volunteers. In fact, we have 27,000 volunteers throughout the country, and um, they're the ones who are granting wishes. So um, your listeners can can log on to wish dot org. And they can find their local chapter. There's an easy chapter uh, locator that's on the website. I would just encourage folks to get in touch with their their local chapter. And I think they'd be very surprised. You know, a lot of people come to us and say, well, I do this, and there's, I can't envision a wish that would involve that. And I'd say you'd actually be surprised at the, the variety of wishes that, that, that come across our desk. So get involved at the, at the local level with your local chapter by visiting wish.org and, and seeing how you can contribute, whether it's, it's uh, your, your services, whether it's your time, or you know, airline miles or, or cash is, is always greatly appreciated um, to, make these, to make these wishes happen. Oh, wonderful. Well, Josh, we appreciate what you're doing. And um, I know for you, um, you've made actually uh, a very large career leap um, from meteorologist <laughs> to, <laughs> to the nonprofit world. So it's true. <laughs> and I know there's a story behind that, which I'd love to uh, love to talk to you about. But um, I, I thank you, you know, for the work that you're doing. Um, and, and bringing, you know, and certainly encouraging travel um, mm-hmm. is one of many wishes, you know, among a, uh, a very young population. 
Thank you. Well, I, I, absolutely. I do often say that I, I think I have one of the best jobs in the world, but the, the job would not be possible without, without support uh, from people like you and from, from the folks out there who are listening. Uh, it's, it's incredibly valuable to us, and, and we, we appreciate the opportunity to talk about Make-A-Wish and to talk about uh, Give Wishes Wings. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Josh. Thank you. After the break, if you're interested in starting a travel business, an adventure travel lawyer should be a paramount member of your team. I always tell clients it's best to put things in writing with whoever they work with, whether they're customers or suppliers. Next, as World Footprints continues. Hi, my name's Timothy Kendrick. I'm Grace Kendrick. And we love World Footprints Radio. And I'm a transplant from Michigan here in Vancouver and loving it. We love the radio. Thank you. My father had prostate cancer. My grandfather, two great uncles, died from it. I wish I'd known about the family history, but it just wasn't talked about. My name's Lonnie. I had my prostate removed in May of 1995, and I'm still here. So there is life after prostate cancer. I'm living proof. One thing I would want to share with any man that thinks that he may have prostate cancer is, number one, get it checked. Secondly, you have time after the diagnosis. Read, learn, go talk with your doctor, and make some decisions. Because knowledge is power. It cannot be understated. Prostate cancer is the most common cancer among men in Michigan. If you've been diagnosed, talk with your health care provider about your options and visit prostatecancerdecision.org today. Sponsored by the Michigan Department of Community Health, the Michigan Cancer Consortium, and the Michigan Association of Broadcasters. Human trafficking is the fastest growing criminal industry in the world. One of the greatest myths is that human trafficking is only a third world problem. But neither education, wealth, age, race, nor social standing protects one from becoming a victim of human trafficking. Awareness and action are key to fighting this crime against humanity. To report human trafficking or to learn more, call the National Human Trafficking Hotline at 1-888-3737-888. Collectively, we can put an end to human trafficking one step at a time. My name is Mo. I'm born and raised in Alexandria, Egypt, and I live in New Orleans for almost 17 years. And I, I like to hear Wallet Footprints. Thank you. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Ian and I often describe ourselves as recovering attorneys turned travel journalists. For us, leaving law and focusing on travel was a choice. For Chun Wright, combining law with her passion for travel led her to fill a void in the travel industry. Chun has carved her space as an adventure travel lawyer and is considered the preeminent attorney in this niche field. Chun, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Tanya. I'm delighted to be here. So, you know, when I first learned about this niche, I thought that the practice of adventure travel law was meant to assist travelers, but your practice was actually developed to assist travel providers. Explain to us what adventure travel law is and what, as an adventure travel lawyer, you do. Well, adventure traveler travel law, as you mentioned, is, in fact, a niche, much like 
other niches you might have heard of, such as wine law, and there's medical marijuana law, art law, and yacht law. And when I entered into this area, I had noticed that there were a number of attorneys that worked as travel lawyers, working with consumers, but there was this gap as far as lawyers that really focused and marketed and working with adventure travel companies. Mm -hmm. So adventure travel law really focuses on serving the legal needs of the adventure travel industry from the business side. So I worked with tour operators, travel agents, media, as well as various suppliers. The legal and business issues are really intriguing because many of the tour operators operate around the world. Mm-hmm. So their issues can span continents and a cross-section of law. So we might encounter contractual issues, international relationships. Sometimes there are partnership disputes or disputes with suppliers. So that raises the issues of disputes as well as litigation. Intellectual property. So tool operators and other companies in this space, they have brands and they want to protect their brands, and sometimes they encounter issues with people that are encroaching on them. Mm-hmm. So we encounter intellectual property issues. And then there's a host of risk management, so waivers of liability, uh, what do you do in times of crisis, and, and much more. So say, you know, with a contractual dispute, how is jurisdiction determined? Because we're talking about, you know, international uh, legal ramifications. Yes. So on that, and that's a, that's a great question, I always tell clients it's best to put things in writing with whoever they work with, whether they're customers or suppliers, to make sure that their contracts contain a jurisdiction clause that expressly says where disputes will be handled, mm-hmm. what law will be governed. The tricky thing is where companies don't have anything in place. And that's where you end up having to look at where each business is and then determine where you think jurisdiction should be. And it's really a kind of a complicated area. You have to look at the laws of each jurisdiction where all the parties are. So you can see it's very complicated. Sure. So we try to avoid that by by making sure it's clear up front. Mm-hmm. But it's not. there's no easy answer to that. So, you know, I'm I'm thinking, you know, certainly um, because you are working with tour operators and we've seen a number of devastating natural disasters over the last few years, most recently in Nepal, how, I mean, do you have any case studies from your own files or others that illustrate how important this type of legal preparedness is for a client? Yes, well, there's, there's no sort of public case study. I think some of, some of the case studies we can really just see by watching the news every day and seeing what's happening on the ground. And it's really important to have what I call a crisis management plan mm-hmm. because, as you can see with the devastation in Nepal, companies have to act quickly. There are a lot of different moving pieces. There are a lot of different people and entities they have to work with. And the last thing they need to do is figure out things on the fly. So I always encourage my clients and work with them to have a strong crisis management plan in place. 
and a strong plan has a variety of components, including a very very thought out communications plan mm-hmm. that addresses all elements of how communications will occur in times of crisis. Um, also, uh, crisis management plans should have in place a medical evacuation and crisis services process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if if people need to be evacuated, if you have customers in a particular country who are hurt, what can you do to help them? Um, professional liability insurance is key, and you'd be surprised. Some companies do work without having insurance in place. Oh, my. That, that, it, yeah, that's it, a big no-no. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it makes me shudder when I encounter those situations. So um, people just get, I think they get focused on other things, and when times are good, you don't worry about insurance, but, you know, one, one crisis can happen and your company could be tanked. Mm-hmm. So that's a really important piece to have is insurance and an adequate level of insurance. Sure, sure. I mean, I, <laughs> this is kind of overwhelming listening to you talk and all of the, the considerations. You know, I know you're earning every single one of your billable hours um, with the work <laughs> that you're doing. Um, and I don't know if you knew this, but Ian and I actually fell into travel journalism as a result of operating a travel agency. We're former travel agency um, owners and even you know, in that home-based business, we carried error and admissions insurance. Um, but I, I'm wondering, just for the benefit of any other home-based travel agents who may be listening, could we or should we um, have uh, used your services? And if so, how? I mean, is your are your services um, also beneficial to, to home-based travel agents? Yes, uh- Pretty much anyone in the adventure travel business and travel business, I do work I work in the broader industry as well, um, could greatly benefit from having legal advice. You can certainly find me by going to my website at uh, ctwrightlaw.com. That's C like Charlie, T like Tracy Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T, law.com, or adventuretravellaw.com. That's a second domain that I own. Mm-hmm. I, the, the reality is... With many companies in the adventure travel business as well as home-based travel agents, that resources are always of concern. And I think a lot of times people don't reach out to lawyers because they're worried that they can't afford it. But I say you can't afford not talking to a lawyer. Yes. And, and, and so even if you have a very thin budget, it's worth at least talking to someone like me or there are a few other attorneys in this space, and find out whether they can give you a consultation within your budget. Mm-hmm. And then and then you always, I always, in fact, I had um, a client come to me recently, and there were about five or six different things they needed to do. So what I did is I came up with kind of priority issues and then put a timeline on it that we discussed mm-hmm. that fit with their budget. So I always realized, you not, may not be able to take care of certain legal issues today, but let's get to the major ones, and we can get to the other ones later mm-hmm. on your timeline. Okay. Okay. And and I just want to mention that your website is also, there's a link on uh, your guest page and, and certainly the show page um, to your website for anyone listening who um, is 
really uh, considering your services and it should be considering your services. And I wish we had met you when we owned the travel agency <laughs> back in the day. Um, you know, Ian and I, uh, and I know, you know, we share the, the passion for, for travel, which is what brought you to, to create this area for yourself. Um, and so as travel journalists, we get to travel a lot. And I'm, I'm wondering, as someone like yourself who kind of works on the periphery of travel, are you also afforded great travel opportunities by clients well, I, or what have you? I, I, I do travel quite a bit. And it's a combination of business travel. So I attend the Adventure Travel uh, Summit every year, mm-hmm. and that's held around the world. So, so that's work-related, but it's also fun for me because it's always held in interesting destinations. Um, and then I also do personal travel. But the reality is, while I work with a lot of adventure travel companies, I'm not going out every week on their trips. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to, you know, stay back to support them. So, but I, I do travel uh, quite a bit, and I do so because that's what I love, and I have my own practice so that I can build in some opportunities to travel, whether it's for work or for pleasure. Sure. So, so what are some of your favorite places? Like a place that has had the most, uh, or been the most impactful. For you, oh, that's that's always a tough question for me. I always say it depends. If you're talking about eating croissants and having a great cup of coffee, mm-hmm. um, I love places <laughs> like Europe. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> uh, but I, but but in all seriousness, as far as impactful, um, I think especially given what's happening in Nepal, really been thinking about that, and I would say one of the most impactful was actually going to Nepal. Um, and and I think it was in part because of when I went. So in 2001, I was planning a trip around the world. I was going to take seven months off and travel, starting in Nepal and doing the Everest Base Camp track. Mm. So um, I, like everyone, clearly remember 9-11 and what I was doing that day. And um, I also had in my hand a ticket to Nepal on September 26th. Mm. So I I spent quite a bit of time talking to friends and family and just trying to decide if I was going to continue on. And I decided instead of being gripped by fear, I would actually continue with my plans. And I'm very happy that I did it. So it was a really interesting time to go to Nepal. Um, Nepal really impacted me because it was so different than any other place I'd ever traveled to. Mm-hmm. Uh, the infrastructure, the living quest, uh, living conditions the uh, political structure, just many things about it was so different that it was just such a rich, textured experience. At the same time, when I went, Americans were not traveling, so their tourism had dropped, they estimated, 40%. And so I would walk around Kathmandu, and when I saw a number of Europeans, I saw very few Americans. The Mm -hmm. shops were empty, and Nepal was really, really uh, harmed by the lack of tourism. And it was great to see them rebound in the intervening years. Uh, and, of course, the, the, the earthquake has just been devastating. And, yeah. Um, but I would say Nepal um, and, and the Himalayas, I mean, doing the Everest Base Camp track was really just one of the highlights of my, li- my life. 
Was it just kind of like uh, walking history? Is that what really touched you? It was, it was, I mean, parts were history. I think what what touched me is one, I sort of felt like it was an area that was part of centuries-old Silk Road. Mm. So um, just just understanding Nepal's sort of place, the intersection of, it, of trade. Uh, then just the pure endurance of it, so walking six to ten hours a day. Wow. And it was very grueling, so it was really just, I think, a personal challenge to do that. The other piece was connecting culturally. I had a, a Sherpa guide and porter, um, and they were just really wonderful and just getting to know the, the Sherpa Nepalese people. Mm-hmm. Um, the, seeing, seeing the Himalayas was just magnificent. I mean, they really are incredibly stunning. Um, it was beautiful. Um, and then going to high altitude was, was a very different experience. I went to Kalapatar, which is 18,500 feet. So oh it's about goodness. the highest highest you can go without actually being uh, a mountaineer and climbing Everest. So that was quite special. And then I, I kind of, I, I look like I'm from Nepal, even though I'm not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the interesting experience for me was just going and being confused people believing, other trekkers believing that I ran whatever lodge we were staying in. So that was quite interesting. <laughs> well, it kind of gave you a different immersion experience, I suppose. Very different Im- immersion. It, it, it was fun, and I um, really enjoyed that aspect as well. So. Wow. That's, it sounds wonderful. And, you know, I, I, your life journey has been so amazing, and I love how you've successfully, you know, carved out your space by combining your interest in law and your passion for for travel and um, and I you know you're doing well at it and and um, the choice the life choice you made um, was certainly the right one um, for you and I would love to have you come back on our show perhaps you know to offer an abbreviated adventure travel law 101 course the next time I would love that Tanya I um, would be happy to talk with you about some dates for your for your listeners Oh, wonderful. Thank you. It's our pleasure, Tune. Thank you so much for, for joining us today on World Footprints. Thank you, Tanya. Coming up, we'll learn about dust tea, dingoes, and dragons, and we'll enjoy adventures in culture, cuisine, and commerce with a globe trekking executive. You really have to take a little bit of time, if you can, to at least see one or two of the things that everybody else comes to wherever you are to see or experience. Next, as World Footprints continues. Hi, I'm Tia from Montana, and I love World Footprints Radio. More than 100 million wild animals are killed each year, illegally. Poaching is just one of the risks animals face at our hands. I'm Tom Barry. I'm an actor. I grew up in the beautiful rural countryside of Ohio, where animals roamed freely in the open forests. I have a deep concern to help preserve those open spaces for our wildlife friends so they can live and thrive like they used to. Destruction of their habitats threaten their very existence. The best way to protect wildlife is to protect the land where they live. The Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust works with private landowners to protect wildlife, to preserve natural habitats, and establish permanent sanctuaries. To learn more, or to work with the Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust. Call 800-729-SAVE. 
That's 800-729-SAVE. Or visit wildlifelandtrust.org. Thank you. Hi, this is Jennifer Coolidge. The American Heart Association says the disco song Stayin' Alive is the near-perfect beat for hands-only CPR. If you see a teen or adult collapse from cardiac arrest, you only need two steps to help save a life. Call 911 and push hard and fast in the center of the chest to the beat of the song Stayin' Alive. Disco is back and it's saving lives. To learn more, go to heart.org slash hands-only CPR. Nationally supported by the WellPoint Foundation. Bonjour, je m'appelle Nico, je suis français et j'adore écouter World Footprints. Hello, I'm Nico, I'm French and I love to listen to World Footprints. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Bob Hemphill has spent the better part of a decade racking up millions of airline frequent flyer miles, traveling the globe, helping to build a multi-billion dollar solar energy company from a startup. From his service in the Vietnam War to international business negotiations and unique cultural practices, Bob has seen and done it all. In his new book, Dust Tea, Dingoes, and Dragons, Adventures in Culture, Cuisine, and Commerce from a Globe Trekking Executive, Bob shares hidden gems and a variety of rules for international travelers. Bob, first I want to thank you, first and foremost, for your service to our country over the years. Oh, well, thank you very much. Now, uh, tell us exactly what is dust tea. I've never heard of dust tea, and I'm a tea drinker. Well, you're actually quite lucky. It's <laughs> something I was, I was served in, an, in a western province in China. It was introduced as the provincial specialty which is always a bad sign because that means it's not good enough to make it in Beijing. <laughs> they brought out some hot water and a dish full of dirt and stones and small sticks. And I thought, they're not going to do this, are they? And they took several teaspoons, put it in a glass, uh, poured the hot water in it, mixed it around, and it looked like tea made out of dirt and dust. And then they said, you'll really like this. Huh. And so... I drank it, and I did not really like it. <laughs> it, was, it was awful. <laughs> now, uh, yeah, you're 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 right that uh, it's lucky I've never tried <laughs> tried such a uh, delicacy. Now, you were in a provincial area, but you're in you were in China on business travel, or was this a leisure trip for you? Oh no, this was uh, we were doing. We were attempting to do a get the arrangements made for a 600-megawatt electric power plant in Shaanxi province, which is one of the interior provinces where they have a lot of coal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted them I wanted them to do the deal, so I was going to go along with anything they suggested that seemed at least vaguely legal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, your your book is a compilation of letters to your dad from the road. How did this book come along? I mean, this is over, I'm assuming, over a decade worth of writing. Did your dad save these letters all those years? I don't know if he did, but I saved copies of them because I thought they were so interesting. And, I, you know, and I put a lot of work into it. Um, but basically, they were written to educate and amuse my father, who was an Air Force colonel, but who knew nothing about business. And I wanted to 
perhaps justify the fact that I wasn't a total failure because I wasn't an <laughs> Air Force officer. Um, and besides, the stuff was so funny and so strange and so intriguing that mm-hmm. it was just nice to write it down. Now, speaking of funny, I know you've had a lot of really interesting experiences, and there's some very, very funny stories um, contained in your your book. What is? Do you have a favorite story, and can you share one with us? Uh, well, there are a lot of stories that I like a lot, but one of my favorites, we were in Pakistan. We just finished signing the papers to authorize a plant in one of the provinces in the Punjab. And so my team and I, we were all Americans, wanted to have a small celebration. But Pakistan is an Islamic country and they really don't like to serve alcohol and it's very hard to actually get it. We were staying in the Marriott Hotel in Islamabad and it turned out once you went through the hoops, they said, okay, but first you must sign this form, and then we will send a drink, a bottle of really bad whiskey, up to your room. <laughs> so I said, I thought, okay, this is like some form that says I promise I'll pay for this. I took the form, and then I read it, and it said basically, by signing this form, you agree that you're, we will send you this bottle of whiskey, and you further agree that you are you know, a heathen, and you're going to go to hell when you die. <laughs> oh. And I thought... I wonder if this is valid outside of Pakistan. <laughs> but we I signed the form, and we had a small celebration, and one of my team said to me, you have to stay here with us, and you have to always be around, because you're now our team's designated infidel. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, <laughs> you're talking about a contract as a lawyer. Both my <laughs> husband and I are lawyers. I'm, you know, the wheels are already turning. You know, what's a, you know, is this a jurisdictional issue? You know, is this enforceable in international law? <laughs> so, right. Was it signed under duress? Right. Really? <laughs> wow. Um, Okay. <laughs> Just for those traveling to Pakistan, I, I think maybe something to uh, to be aware of. Now, in in your book, you have a lot of gems and, and tips that um, you list. And I'm wondering, are these items that you've learned um, from lessons from your own mishaps, perhaps on the road? Oh, my goodness, yes. I mean, there's not a thing in here that I didn't do wrong the first time and <laughs> and figured out how to do it right subsequently. Do tell. <laughs> like what? Well, everybody knows in, in third world countries it's not a really good idea to drink the water. And so you don't. But what you forget is that when they serve you, you know, you order a gin and tonic and they serve it to you at the bar, and it doesn't occur to you that the ice cubes are made of the water that you're not supposed to drink. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's you know, I, I ended up always saying, no matter what they were serving me, no ice, please. And I thought about actually changing my last, my middle name to no ice. <laughs> but I didn't. So, so you, you had a few uh, mishaps there. Um, what are some of the six things that you say a business traveler should avoid? Um. Well, you should several things. First of all, you don't you don't have to travel light. If you're traveling on business, you're not there as a tourist. You're not going to see, you know, six cities in five days. 
you're there to do business and you will need appropriate clothing you'll need marketing materials you know it it's don't worry about traveling light you should probably travel heavy so that you can do business in a foreign country with no particular support um also i this astonishes me but the other thing you should do as you're flying when you're flying over there you should fly in business clothes it's not as comfortable as wearing jeans and running shoes and a sweatshirt, but when they lose your luggage and you have to get off the plane and go to a business meeting, you're going to be really glad that at least you're wearing, you know, rumpled khakis and a blue blazer. Mm. You'll, you'll be acceptable and you'll be able to continue to do business until your luggage actually shows up. I, you know, I, when I fly, I'm in jeans and sandals. I just, I could not imagine. Um, and, and, you know, and your, your point is valid and, um, and I think incredibly um, spot on for, for business travelers. I, I, I'm glad that my travel experiences have not involved international business dealings. <laughs> and you also talk about seven gems that you've actually discovered for international business traveler. What, what are those? I, I, I can't imagine uh, what those would be. What, what are those? Oh, these are, I, I can't say that I'm the first person ever to discover these things, but they're places that are that are kind of out of the way and not recognized as being as impressive and interesting as they are. Ah, oh, okay. My, my favorite is maybe in Western Australia. We were, again, attempting to do a power plant there, and I was going from Perth to a little town in the south called Collie, where the coal mine was, and it was in October of the year and I and I was driving because it wasn't worth flying and suddenly I am driving through acres and acres and acres of gorgeous wildflowers just spectacular freesias and blanket flowers and just wow just growing everywhere and it's not listed in any guidebook mm-hmm. but for you know two or three weeks in the fall in western Australia it is the most amazing you know it makes it makes going to Holland and seeing the tulips look like, you know, a school expedition. It's just astonishing and well worth it. I was delighted to be driving, and I drove probably much more slowly than I would have otherwise. I was <laughs> so taken with all the wildflowers. And, and that was kind of an accidental road trip for you, it sounds like. Complete accident. I had no idea that, that these sorts of things existed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that raises a, a question that I had for you. As a business traveler, you know, you're coming and going. You're going from one deal to another, from, you know, one country to back home and vice versa. How much of a country do you actually get to enjoy when you're traveling as an international business traveler at your level? Because you are a C-level person. You know, you don't you don't get to enjoy as much as you would think. You see the insides of taxi cabs and hotel rooms and meeting rooms, which isn't really that enjoyable. Um, and then you're back at the airport and you're going to the next place. You really have to take a little bit of time, if you can, to at least see one or two of the things that everybody else comes to wherever you are to see or experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was sometimes able to do that, although not always. And, and I always wished I'd done more of it. 
Sounds like you needed to um, take more accidental road trips. <laughs> <laughs> I did, absolutely. <laughs> now, is, is there a country that has had a, a really transformative or, or profound impact on you? And, and what is that country and why? Um, well, I think, I think the most profound impact that I've witnessed and one that in some very small way we contributed to was the change in China over the last 20 or 30 years. When we first started going there, before we were doing solar solar plants, it was very poor. Um, the high government officials wore Western suits, but they left the little fabric label on the sleeve that mm-hmm. said, you know, Brioni or something, which looked very odd, but it was they wanted everyone to know they had enough money to buy a Western suit. Mm-hmm. It was really peculiar. Uh, Beijing had one ring road and two Western hotels. It And now it's completely different. Six ring roads in Beijing. There must be 50 Western hotels. Nobody spoke English when we were there. Mm-hmm. We had to resort to the old matchbook trick. If you left the hotel, you needed to take a matchbook with you because if you couldn't get a cab or to come back and you you didn't speak any Chinese and nobody spoke any English... So you would give the cab driver the matchbook, and he would read it and say, "Oh, okay, that hotel." Mm-hmm. So there were—it's just been dramatically uh, better for all the people in China. It's astonishing. Now, what what time frame was this when you first started traveling to China and had to resort to the matchbook uh, oh, trick? We started right after Tiananmen Square, about 1990. Okay. Okay. And and in. We built up about seven different projects, all electricity projects, in a, in a bunch of cities, not in Beijing. Um, we had to do business in the provinces because that's where they needed the electricity. Mm-hmm. So I got to see quite a lot of provincial China, mostly by road. Mm. Um, and the roads were terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was actually there the first time in 96, and... Um, traveled uh by a public uh public bus i we we learned enough mandarin to navigate our way um to uh p- portions of the great wall the untouristy portions and by a local bus so i remember those roads uh um, oh, you are you are a brave woman local buses especially in that time period was was very local yeah, <laughs> indeed, indeed. So, uh, you know, the American companies, I mean, the, the, uh, most of the time, you know, um, I think American companies kind of, they get a, a, a very bad rap, companies operating on foreign soil. Um, but in your, your book, you kind of separate truth from myths about uh, American companies operating over, overseas. What are some of the myths that you dispel? Well, probably the major myth that you that everyone seems to think is that um, you bring in a bunch of Westerners to run your business. You create, you know, elegant Western little compounds for them, and that's and then they live in the compounds and you know run your business, whatever it is. That's it. First of all, nobody I know in business internationally does that because it's way too expensive. Mm. Um, and besides, you're there. You're not there to live in a Western compound and only to talk to people who speak English. You can do that in Toledo. Um, 
<laughs> You're there because there is something that the country has, some resource or service or capability or skill that you can augment and make a business out of. You have to get out. You have to be on the ground. You have to relate to all of the regulatory and legal and political folks. Um, it's a very – you can't do business effectively without being, to some extent, immersed in mm-hmm. the country. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just not possible. You won't be successful. Mm. Are, are you still traveling as much, Bob, or, or have, you, uh, have you retired? Um, I'm not, I don't get up and fly somewhere every week, which is honestly a pleasant change. Mm-hmm. But I'm still going to places that I, need, I haven't ever been to and which amuse me. I'm going to Namibia shortly, I'm, and I'm a little envious that it's already on your schedule. Um, Cuba is opening up enough that you can now go to Cuba. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wish I thought Egypt were safe enough to go visit, but I don't. There are just lots of places still that are intriguing and interesting in the world. Yeah. I mean, I, I would think with somebody with millions of frequent flyer miles, you've, you've covered quite a big portion of our globe. Well, I will say that I've had enough extra pages put in my passport that now it looks like a small Bible. <laughs> You're a man after our own heart here. <laughs> so, well, and so... Uh, you know, you're not traveling as much, um, and uh, but you're doing something that I'm very curious about uh, in your free time, competitive duck cooking. I have never, as a foodie, I have never heard of such a competition. Tell, tell us well, about it. We, um, I forgot, it, I should mention that it also involves Pinot Noir. Oh, well, um, there we, now we're talking. <laughs> it was a sort of a neighborhood thing, which we organized, and... Two or three. I'd, I'd always wanted to learn to cook duck, um, and I couldn't ever bring myself to do it because already. But once somebody else said, "Well, I can do that," it kind of a contest grew out of that. Um, unfortunately, the only duck you could get was frozen, and so the other competitors didn't realize that and sh- showed up at the store to buy their duck at three thirty in the afternoon and got a one in a solid block of ice. So. We sort of won the contest, my companion and I, by default. We at least defrosted our duck. <laughs> oh, and I happen to enjoy duck. So I, the next time you guys hold this contest, is it an annual thing? And uh, you're, you're in Encinitas, California, yes? I am, and yes, it's, it's, uh, it's an annual event, and you, we'd be delighted to have you be the judge, actually. Oh, oh, with Pinot Noir, throw in a bottle or a glass, and, and we're there. <laughs> so, Bob Hemphill is the author of Dusty Dingoes and Dragons, Adventures in Culture, Cuisine, and Commerce from a Globe Trucking Executive. Bob, it has been a delight to have you on World Footprints, and I look forward to uh, to breaking bread and, and duck with you in the near future. Oh, that would be wonderful. Thank you so much for inviting me to be a guest. Thank you so much for joining us for today's World Footprints radio show. We look forward to taking you on another journey to connect you to remarkable places, people, and memorable stories. World Footprints is aired twice weekly on Tuesdays and Fridays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. All of our shows are archived on our website at worldfootprints.com. 
And you can also find us on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and Stitcher. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we wish you blue skies and transformative travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. This has been a presentation of World Footprints Media, all rights reserved.